The age, 1450 to 1850. The places, Europe and North America. Today we tell the stories of the women who followed, suffered, and died with European and American armies in the age of gunpowder. They are the invisible people of military history, the women of the army, the camp followers. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 25, Camp Followers. Guys, today is a different kind of episode. I want you to get so excited right now. Get excited. Come on. You might be able to tell it's a different episode because of that intro, which didn't specify a particular year. I'm talking more about a broader time period. Today's episode is less of a narrative and more of an examination of a broad subject, the unseen role women played in military history. In particular, I am focusing on European and Western armies from 1450 to 1850, just because that's where my best source material is, and it's a fairly familiar period to all of us. We've I've done multiple episodes already in this period. But this is not really a story. There's not much of a plot. But don't worry, don't worry. It's still super interesting. It has a structure, and it's super important. Plus, it is Women's History Month, so no time like the present. Something I need to settle up front. I'm going to be discussing concepts of gender, especially gender roles and gender dynamics, and how they play into military history today. This includes relationships and sex, so I will be discussing that today, letting you know that in advance. But there's also the super unfortunate subject of sexual assault and rape. I'm making this very, very clear, right up front. I will be talking about sexual assault in today's episode. I hate thinking about it, talking about it, I hate it. But it happened, and we have to address it. So a major, major content warning today for that. It's going to be in here. I'm letting you know in advance. So as we are now fully aware, this is not just history. It's military history. There's some dark and nasty stuff about. The podcast remains PG-13, though I am straining the boundaries of that rating today, as I have just described. My language will remain clean, though I will use words today that can be construed as slurs against sex workers in a different context. I am using them in their historical, contemporary sense. Rest assured that I will not be using these words as insults. All my sources are on the website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so knock yourself out. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real women who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Military history is kind of a bro-fest, isn't it? It can be easy for military historians to forget that women are 50% of humanity. Most rulers and generals, the usual protagonists of military history, have been men. And most of the soldiers, though not all. I do my best to highlight women's participation in every episode I can, in every story I can, but sometimes we either don't have lots of sources for women's participation, or just by the nature of the conflict, women were excluded from the narrative. The Imjin War was a conflict where it's 100% certain that women were extensively involved, but my sources on the subject were mostly silent on their presence. I highlighted them when I found them, but I can't go back in time and make the dudes on the spot write more about the women. 
In this, silence on women's roles in warfare is usually the rule in popular media. Most war movies, most video games, heck, most military fiction tends to downplay or ignore the presence of women in military history. You might get the impression sometimes that women have always been far away from war, that war is done by men to other men, with women playing side roles as victims or the girl waiting for me at home, if anything. But this is not the reality. Only very recently has history started to look at women as participants, not just as bystanders or oddities. And today's episode focuses on one very major component of women's presence in military history. Throughout most of European history, every army marched with a large train of non-combatants, including some men, some children, but mostly women. Women were not just a major part, but an essential part of these armies. The time period I'm focusing on today is Europe and North America from around 1450 to around 1850. Not because this is the only time when women were present, but just to narrow the focus a little bit. See, military history isn't just about fighting. Most armies spend most of their time not fighting, after all. Though some women fought in their country's wars, and we will go into that, my focus today is on those women who didn't carry weapons but were still part of the army. For every woman who pulled a Mulan, who disguised herself as a man to fight in the ranks, there were a thousand women doing the unrecognized work that made an early modern army function. The women of the army, the prostitutes, whores, wives, girlfriends, menders, laundresses, sutlers, peddlers, foragers, pillagers, and thieves. They were defended, but they were also defenders. They were fought over, but they also fought. They were victims of violence, but they could be victimizers. They could be perpetrators. They were always present, and their stories need to be told. They're some of history's most numerous, but least recognized unknown soldiers. The Camp Followers Today, we'll be talking about women in European and American armies, 1450 to 1850. We're going to look at just how many of them there were and how they fit into the armies based on their relationships with the soldiers and the men. We're going to see what they did, how they were an integral part of these armies and the part they played in warfare. And we'll see how they suffered and inflicted violence. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, meditate, disassociate, whatever. Do the thing you need to do. So put aside your needles, mount up on the wagon, and if I were you, I'd keep a knife or two under your skirts. Because we're going on campaign. So let's say I ask you to try to picture an army in the Middle Ages, or the age of Shakespeare, or the Three Musketeers, or even the age of George Washington and Napoleon. Try to conjure up your mental picture of what that army looks like. Now how many women do you see? Honestly, probably not many, and that's okay. It's not your fault. You shouldn't feel bad about that. That's the image the media and pop culture have given us. But I want you to take that image. The soldiers with their uniforms and their guns and their cannons and their flags marching down some road. And add a baggage train. And included in that baggage train are thousands of women. Most of them will be marching. Many will be pulling children along. Some will be riding on wagons or carts, including those women who are pregnant. There will be some men in the baggage train, but they are greatly outnumbered by the army's women. 
the term for these non-combatant personnel was camp followers. So let's start with this image and move on from there. And I want to make it clear, this wasn't just a couple of women here and there. Sometimes the numbers of camp followers outnumbered the actual soldiers, especially in the 1500s and early 1600s. In 1615, a German military commentary said, When you recruit a regiment of German soldiers today, you do not only acquire 3,000 soldiers. Along with these, you will certainly find 4,000 women and children. A monk writing about an army passing by in the 1520s observed, If there were 10,000 travelers, there were also 20,000 concubines. So yeah, it's not just a couple. Sometimes there's almost twice as many as the army itself. So that's my big question in today's episode. Who were these women? What were their lives like? What did they do? And when did armies stop traveling with these large trains of women, if they ever did? But before we get too deep into that, we need to talk a little bit about European armies in this period, 1450 to 1850. This is relevant. The composition of these armies explains how women fit into this military system. Most European countries from 1450 to 1650, the first half of this period, relied on large mercenary armies to fight their wars. These mercenary armies were not loyal to any one state or ruler. They were loyal to whoever paid them. Most countries did not have the power or money to raise and supply professional armies of their own, so they had to hire them. They just said, hey, Mr. M von Merkersdorf or whatever, I will pay you X amount of money this year to raise 5,000 infantry and go fight the Austrians. And these mercenary armies were the bulk of fighting forces throughout this period in a bunch of dust-ups. The Italian Wars, the Dutch Wars, the Thirty Years' War, French Wars of Religion, and so forth. These mercenary armies came with problems. They were hard to control, they were expensive, they were undisciplined, and they were just a lethal, unpleasant menace to any civilians in their path. When their pay was late, when their food didn't reach them, or whenever they felt like it, they just took whatever they wanted or needed from the countryside. This was called pillaging, foraging, requisitioning, all very formal names for what was basically organized plunder and robbery, usually accompanied by rape, torture, and murder. 20,000 violent men are not going to take no for an answer when it comes to anything they want, whether it's your food, your money, your daughter, or your small intestine. This was bad enough in the short term, but in the long term, this pillaging could be devastating. The Thirty Years' War in particular cost Germany a third of its population after three straight decades of mercenary armies on murder-drunk roadshows. Kind of like real-life post-apocalyptic road gangs. So the people in charge looked at this full-throttle lunacy and said, you know, we should really do something about this. So from about 1650 onwards, about the structure of European armies changed. This didn't happen overnight. I say about 1650. That's just a convenient landmark. This was a very slow evolution. But countries like England, France, Spain, Austria, Prussia raised homegrown professional units loyal to the monarch and supplied by the state, closer to what we think of as modern armies. These are the kinds of armies that fought in the Jacobite Wars, the Seven Years' War, the American Revolution, French Revolution, and the Wars of Napoleon. So there, you have two big types of armies, the Mercenary Army and the State Army. It wasn't that clear-cut in real life, I am simplifying this a lot, but you get it. 
I'm making this distinction now because the role and number of women camp followers in an army depended on which type of army it was. And now that we've laid that down, I want to establish something else. An average army from, say, 1650 could number around 20,000 men. So based on those ratios we heard earlier, you might have maybe 20,000 women within that army. Let's say a one-to-one -one assumption of camp followers. This is not a rule of thumb. Not, not a rule of thumb. This is not or an average. The number of women within an army could and did vary wildly for any number of reasons. But 40,000 people roughly mixed among the genders? Guys, that is a medium-sized European city in 1700. It's about the size of Strasbourg. It's the average enrollment of one of the bigger American universities, a little bit bigger than Virginia Tech or a little smaller than the University of Texas. My point here is that the early modern European army was a co-ed institution of young to middle-aged men and women who lived, slept, marched, and fought together. They had families together. When I say an army was a moving city, I am not exaggerating at all. It had an internal economy and had an internal society. It was a campaign community with its own culture and its own gender roles. It was a social organism, and there were hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million Europeans who were part of a campaign community at any given time. The armies of early modern Europe were more than just a fighting force. They were an entire parallel society. So what types of women marched with these armies? What kinds of relationships did these women have with the men of the army? Well, we've established that the campaign community was a society. <laughs> we live in a society. And just like any society, women held different places within the hierarchy, filled different roles. According to historian John Lynn, whose work provided the bedrock of this episode, it's the main book I consulted for a lot of it, just because he's one of the only ones to really write about it, people of the time sorted women into three different categories based on their relationships to men. You have prostitutes, sex workers, that is, women who had sex with multiple partners for compensation. Now, many observers assumed that all camp followers were prostitutes, and that ain't true. All army prostitutes were camp followers, but not all camp followers were prostitutes. The second category were wives, legally married to one soldier or another. That's fairly obvious, military spouses. But the third category were the women who were usually exclusive to a single partner, but not married. We might call them girlfriends, significant others. But the 1500s and 1600s called any unmarried woman who had sex out of wedlock and these casual relationships, well, a whore. That word implies prostitution today, but it did not have that same meaning back then. You'll see men calling their own girlfriends their whores like it was a normal thing. I am not using this term as an insult. I want to make this very clear. When I talk about so-called whores today, that was how they were described in the language of the time. So, category number one, prostitutes. Prostitution is often called the oldest profession, and it's definitely one of the most persistent. Despite the overtly religious nature of European society, prostitution was extremely common throughout Europe. People did try to ban it, but this was about as effective as the war on drugs. As long as there was a demand, the supply side managed to keep running. But many military leaders saw a steady supply of sex as an important need for their soldiers, a supply of this like anything else. They had the interesting mindset that prostitution was a necessary evil, a way for men to satisfy their manly urges on people who were made for that, I guess, instead of going around molesting normal folk. 
One chronicler said about prostitution, It is good for the local inhabitants, it is said, because their wives, daughters, and sisters will be more in security. There you have it. Don't touch those women, lads. We got women at home for you to touch. Military prostitution was often not just permitted, but regulated. There were standing orders laying out how many prostitutes were allowed and minimum standards for their living conditions. In 1473, Duke Charles the Bold of Burgundy ordered 30 prostitutes for every 500 men. The Spanish Duke of Alba, fighting in the Dutch wars in the 1560s-1570s, set a standard price for the army's quote-unquote public women. They saw prostitutes as just one of the army's support services. Granted, not everyone was on board. More openly religious rulers might try to ban prostitutes from the army altogether. The Protestants, like the English or the Dutch, seemed to do this more often. In 1621, the Protestant King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden ordered that, No whore shall be suffered in the lager, but if any will have his own wife with him, he may. If any unmarried woman be found, he that keeps her may have leave lawfully to marry her, or else be forced to put her away." This could get extreme. Louis XIV, despite being one of history's most notoriously adulterous horn dogs, tried to ban prostitution in the French army. He ordered unmarried women caught in restricted areas near army camps to be disfigured by having their ears and noses cut off. That sounds like a bit of an overreaction. But that was nothing compared to mercenary Captain Philippe Strozzi. He ordered that 800 prostitutes following his army be thrown off a bridge into the river, where many of them drowned. Part of the problem was a moral one. Hard to say you're fighting for Jesus with the battalion of prostitutes trailing your army, although A, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, and B, I have trouble finding in my Bible, which I have, where Jesus said to throw them off a bridge. But there was also a health concern. Venereal disease, STDs, were a nasty, nasty problem. Syphilis started popping up as a major issue in the Italian wars, and a good case of naughty bumps could spread very quickly if everyone is spending their off time with Hot Mary and Tent 6. Many armies mandated VD inspections for their prostitutes. This was still going on as late as the American Revolution. An officer commanding a Delaware regiment in George Washington's army ordered that, the women belonging to the regiment be paraded tomorrow morning, and to undergo an examination from the surgeon of the regiment at his tent, except those that are married. Official prostitutes were much less common when Europe started moving from mercenary to state armies. They were seen as a sign of poor discipline, and rulers wanted to limit the spread of VD and encourage morality in their ranks. But these rules were often not enforced, especially not in wartime. There's a painting in the 1740s from the Jacobite Wars depicting British troops tumbling out of a brothel to go off and fight Bonnie Prince Charlie. As a general rule, prostitutes were officially discouraged after 1650, but usually overlooked. Basically, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. So military prostitutes were part of the campaign community, subject to military discipline and often treated like an essential service. Some commanders might try to get rid of them, but they always managed to slip back in somehow. Any soldier from 1450 to 1850 was going to find what he wanted, and maybe something he didn't want along the way, but them's the breaks. As long as there are men, that's the, there's a demand for certain services, and supply will find its way to the demand. Don't look at me like that. This is Economics 101. So let's look at the second category. Wives. 
legally married women who followed their husbands' armies across Europe. Now, it might seem odd to us in the 21st century that a wife would go with the army. In modern militaries, spouses stay home in garrison when a unit deploys. You don't hear about any wives following World War II or Vietnam or Global War on Terror soldiers overseas. Imagine if you're in Iraq and your wife just shows up at the base. Hey, honey, I came to join you. It's kind of crazy to even think about. Hey, I brought the kids. <laughs> but modern society, especially American society, recognizes the separation between the home and the war front. But a lot of Europe just did not have this separation, especially during the age of mercenary armies. Plus, where else was she going to go? If Sergeant Baker is his family's only means of support, how is he going to do that if his wife doesn't go with him? There were no support services for military wives outside of the army itself. This is just the reality of most armies before the 20th century. So every army traveled with at least some wives. Marriage was much more common with the state armies after 1650, since they were trying to crack down on prostitution. But armies also tried to limit the numbers of married women. It was definitely considered better for a soldier to be married than to have a prostitute or so-called whore. But that didn't mean the army could or would support all those wives. For instance, Elector Frederick William of Brandenburg passed orders that only 30 to 40 soldiers per company would even be allowed to marry, and they had to get the approval of their commander first. The British Army followed a similar pattern. It required soldiers to get their commander's permission before marriage, and had a set number of wives it could take, each regiment could take, on its, quote, ration strength. Six wives per 100 women was the main standard for most of the period we're talking about. In 1813, the Duke of Wellington's army in his wars in Spain against Napoleon counted 4,500 official women on the ration strength for its 60,000 men. Now, this doesn't mean they were the only wives. They were just the only ones on the books. It is almost certain that thousands of unofficial wives marched along with the army. During the American Revolutionary War in 1777, when General John Burgoyne invaded New York on his way to the Battle of Saratoga, at least 2,000 wives and camp followers went along with his 7,500 men on their march to, through rugged upstate New York. One of these wives was the amazing Baroness Frederica Charlotte von Rietzel, wife of Hessian General Frederick Rietzel, who also took their three daughters, all under five, including one infant, on this tromp into upstate New York. Did armies encourage their soldiers to marry? It varied. French regulations on soldier marriage were notoriously restrictive, but Frederick the Great of Prussia encouraged it. He believed it promoted morality, and also that Prussia needed to grow its population. So if you're Jane What's-Her-Name in the 1700s and you got a boyfriend, Private Joe Schmo, and you want to become a Schmo yourself, you got to check the local laws and Joe Schmo's commander might say, Joe, no. Based on my own experience in the military, I bet a lot of commanders in the modern U.S. Army wish they had this power. The trouble for lots of wives was what happened when the unit went on campaign or went overseas. A British unit going to America or India might only be allowed to transport X number of women. The unit would have to pick which women got to go, often by drawing sticks or rolling dice. Any excess wives would be left behind, and as far as supporting themselves, they were basically told to kick rocks. They were given enough money to get back to their home village and literally nothing else. Chances were they would never see their husband again. Now that's harsh as hell. Military families don't always get the support they need in the modern day, could be a heck of a lot worse. 
There is some evidence of weird marriage customs in the army. Ain't no one shelling out thousands of bucks for a nice wedding at the country club. According to one British account, a pair of swords would be crossed on the ground. The soldier would jump over them, then the so-called whore soon-to-be wife jumped after him. As the soldiers gathered around them and chanted the phrase, Leap rogue, follow whore, leap rogue, follow whore. Then the drums would beat a riff, then off to bed to seal the deal. I've seen trashier weddings. Of course, there was the question of what happened if the soldier died? Well, those women were best advised to get another husband fast, or they and their children would fall off the ration strength. You do not want to be high and dry in India when you don't speak Bengali or know how to make naan bread. One British lieutenant said, When a man was shot and his wife was a capable and desirable person, she would receive half a dozen proposals before her husband was 48 hours in the grave. We're getting extremely pragmatic here. Like, listen, Jane, I know old Joe called a Hindu sword with his face five minutes ago, but I've always thought you were real purdy-like, and I got saw my teeth unlike Billy over there. I don't know why I turned that into a southern accent. I was describing the British Army. M my, my accent game is not always as strong as it could be. <laughs> so all armies had at least some number of military wives on campaign, and they were less likely to get disfigured or thrown into the river, so they had that going for them, which was nice. The final category of women were the so-called whores, unmarried women in monogamous relationships with their men. The girlfriends. Now these relationships could be extremely temporary. One writer talks about mainahin, may marriages, which was a relationship that both parties understood would last only for this single campaign. 21st century US soldiers joke about deployment wives, but this is literally that. Given the unstable status of the mercenary army, this was very common during the Thirty Years' War. The German writers said, The German soldiers no sooner an expedition arrives, saddle themselves with frivolous and loose women with whom they contract May marriages. The soldiers enhance the situation by pretending that in war they cannot get along without women. Obviously the writer here disapproves, but that last bit? Well, as we see, they may have needed women more than he thought. Most so-called whores that joined up with an army were widely assumed to be loose or promiscuous, and it was also assumed that the soldiers kept them around for the same reason. Now that was definitely going on, but this was a mutually beneficial relationship for reasons other than sex. A soldier protected and provided for his so-called whore, and she provided him with a cook, laundress, baggage, healthcare, and even financial assistance. We'll talk all about this later on, but these were not purely physical relationships. And the soldiers really wanted their so-called whores around. One German mercenary commander was trying to cut a bunch of the camp followers loose. He's like, oh, these guys are a drag on the army. So he tried to leave them stranded on the other side of the river. But the women started screaming and crying, and the soldiers got agitated. According to the chronicler Johann Wallhausen, the soldiers called out in chorus, Ho, oh, what the devil? I must have my whore back. She has my shirts, collars, shoes, and stockings. The commander eventually allowed the camp followers to stay. So-called whores were much more common in the mercenary armies than in the state armies, and they often ended up in an army just because of the sheer chaos of war across Europe. Big conflicts created lots of refugees, and it was often safer to be part of an army with the soldier boy looking out for you. One camp follower at the end of the Thirty Years' War had to confront the fact that she had been literally born, raised, and married into the armies that were now going to be disbanding. I was
was born in war. I have no home, no country, and no friends. War is all my wealth, and now whither shall I go? So this is how the people of the time categorized the women of the army. Prostitutes, wives, and so-called whores. And the speed with which one category could become the other was pretty amazing. Volhausen talks about the same commander who tried to get rid of the so-called whores coming up with a new method. Hey, he marched him out and declared that any man who had a woman that wasn't his wife would be flogged. You have X amount of time to get rid of this woman. Deal with it. So the men ran off with their so-called whores and found the local priest. In two days, 800 prostitutes, including some most miserable creatures, became duly wedded wives. Talk about malicious compliance, right? On the flip side, a woman whose husband or lover had been killed might find herself forced into prostitution or becoming a so-called whore just for sheer survival. History sucks, but it has usually sucked worse for women, case in point. But those German soldiers had defied the orders of their officers, not just because they loved and wanted their women, though I'm sure many did, but because they needed them. We've seen how women fit into the army via their relationships with men. But what did they do? What purpose did they serve? The answer might surprise you. An early modern army literally could not function without its camp followers. Modern armies, like the United States Army, have large numbers of service members who are not combat arms. They can fight if necessary, but that's not their main job. They are cooks, fuelers, maintainers, suppliers, administrators, transport, medical, etc. This side of the military usually gets neglected in pop culture, even though it is most of the modern military. Historian Christopher Duffy talks about these segments of any army as the teeth the part that does the fighting, and the tail, the combat support. People look at a military and they usually see the teeth, but overlook the tail. There's a tendency to look at modern armies with their enormous tail and assume that this is a modern thing. But in early modern Europe, just as in the Mott today, no army could function without their support personnel. And this was the hidden function of camp followers, from the Middle Ages to the Army of George Washington and beyond. They were the support services, cooks, laundry, supply, transport, finance, medical, and even labor. Or listen to this woman. In 1759, an army wife named Mary May freaked out after her husband was arrested, thus causing her own arrest. This is some of her letter of appeal to Colonel Henry Bouquet asking for clemency from military justice. I beg and hope you'll take it into consideration that twas the love I had for my poor husband and no bad will to your honor. I have been a wife 22 years and have traveled with my husband every place or country the company marched to and have worked very hard ever since I was in the army. I hope your honor will be so good as to pardon me this time that I may go with my poor husband one more time to carry him and my good officers water in the hottest battles as I have done before. Carrying water during battle. Support personnel. Women with the armies worked. They did all sorts of vital tasks that the early modern army required that the men couldn't or sometimes wouldn't do. Wouldn't? 
Yeah. Okay. So we need to talk about gender roles. In almost all societies, there is a distinction between men's work and women's work. What men do and what women do, stereotypically. You know what I'm talking about. The man goes to work. The woman stays home and cooks and cleans. She's barefoot in the kitchen. The classic sitcom family. But gender roles and gendered work are different in every society. They change from age to age and region to region. What was women's work a century ago may be men's work now, or vice versa. Gender roles and gender dynamics are situational. They change. This is why modern historians and experts look at gender as a construct or a concept that can be questioned. Because gender roles don't always make sense, and they have changed and transformed over time. One of the big things is that women's work is not usually seen as real work. In the U.S. Census during much of the 20th century, women who worked on their family farms, sun up to sundown every single day, would be listed as unemployed, even if they worked just as much as their supposedly employed husband, who was listed as a farmer on the census. Washing, cooking, cleaning, spinning, crafting, hauling water, feeding animals, taking care of children, all of that was important, but it was seen as less valuable. Gender roles. That's one reason men were so hostile to women who started working in traditionally male jobs, including the military. It was seen as reducing the value of men's work. People today still claim complain about the military being feminized by the presence of women. So with that in mind, I've already said that early modern armies were a campaign community, a distinct society that ran parallel to the normal civilian societies. And this society had its own distinct gender roles. Men and women both had important jobs within the army. But because women's work is usually undervalued, and because the non-combat arms, the tail, has usually been overlooked, it rarely got mentioned in the history books. But this work always needed to be done. The army needed its women. It literally could not function without them. The militaries of the early modern period, like most militaries in history, were seen as a hyper-masculine world. Masculinity was a core part of the soldier's identity. Some military punishments forced a man to wear a dress. Being feminized was seen as being as worse than physical punishment, because attacking the body was much less cruel than attacking the sense of self. What, you're gonna put, make me wear a dress? Can't you just flog me? That was the, that was the attitude. This heightened sense of manhood in early modern armies meant that doing women's work was seen as more degrading than it would be in civilian life. This created the requirement for military women to do this gendered work within the campaign community. Women were expected to work and they were also subject to military discipline. Women were under military authority. We heard poor Mary May a few minutes ago asking to be spared from military discipline. German armies in the Thirty Years' War had an officer called the Hudenweibel, or Whore Sergeant, yep, I told you, it's used in different ways, whose only job was to command and discipline the women of the baggage train. French women working in Napoleon's army had to wear badges with their job description and registration number. In extreme cases, a misbehaving army woman could be flogged or drummed out of camp. So the women of early modern armies were support personnel, non-combat arms, a necessary component expected to pull their weight. So what was the women's work within the campaign community? 
While a lot of their tasks reflected gender roles within the broader society, one of camp women's main tasks was washing and repairing clothing. This was a highly gendered task that women performed throughout history, scrubbing, washing, mending, sewing. Again, there were parts of this gender role that made no sense whatsoever. In 18th century France, women made the shirts and the linens and repaired garments, but making coats and noble clothing was a job for male tailors. Women were sometimes banned from making coats for men, but they could make their, those men's underwear. Does it make sense? No, not at all. But washing and repairing clothing was a lot more important than it seems. One observer claimed that the poor condition of George Washington's Continental Army was due to the lack of laundresses. Not being used to doing things of this sort, they chose rather to let their linen, etc., rot upon their backs than to be at the trouble of cleaning them themselves. On the one hand, this is pretty pathetic. The men can't wash their own clothes. But that was women's work. The soldiers of the Continental Army didn't appreciate what their women did until they didn't have them anymore. I imagine some French officer showing up in Washington's camp and saying, Hey George, your men look like a bag of smashed butt. Where are the women? Don't you guys know you're supposed to have women? The lack of women could be an actual handicap to the army. But the Continental Army did have more women later on. Again, this was governed by military discipline. British military regs stated that officers and sergeants of the regiment would give the unit's women their clothing for washing, and that they wouldn't farm them out to any other unit to keep the clothing within the regiment. The women were to receive their pay for this service from the unit's funds. Don't overlook that, because doesn't that make them enlisted? They're getting paid by the army to do an army task? Sort of. If they're not army civilians, they're non-combat arms on the army's payroll. The maintenance branch, maintaining soldiers' equipment. Another woman's task was nursing. Throughout the early modern period, tending the sick and wounded was part of women's work. One general even went so far as to say men weren't fit to do this job. Men just don't have the guts. Camp followers were not only allowed, but expected to take care of the army's wounded and sick. When William Howe led his British army to America in 1776, he had a standing order that any woman who traveled with the army had better be prepared to pull nursing duty. Like, you ladies gotta pull your weight. This makes them a key part of the medical branch. Women also cooked, though this was never as gendered as washing or repairing clothes and tending the sick. But when women were present, the cooking was often left to them, and a lot of the gathering and repairing of food and herbs was also their responsibility. So this makes women at least part of the food services branch. All these tasks could produce money for a woman and her partner, whether they were legally married or not. Because one of the arts of the military spouse is and has always been the side hustle. The small business that she maintained with or without her man. Just as in the modern military community where dependents make up a large proportion of on-post workers, civilian workers, off-post employees, women were essential to the small economies that kept the army running. They traded, smuggled, crafted, sewed, cooked, and cleaned for a wage. Women had to be clever, inventive, and savvy to earn this, you know, this little bit of change here and there. When Frederick the Great's Prussian army fought the Battle of Kolin on a hot summer day in 1757, the camp women broke into a local ice house and started selling ice to thirsty soldiers. And the soldiers bought it. But the best side hustle of all was to become a sutler, what the French called a vivandière and the Germans called a marketender. This was someone who owned a traveling shop that sold food, alcohol, tobacco, and other basic goods to the army. 
They could be men, but by the 1700s, almost all sutlers were women. The sutler's tent or the sutler's wagon often became the social gathering point, where everyone went to hang out on the weekend. A painting of the Duke of Marlborough's English army in 1704 shows the soldiers and the camp women relaxing and having a cold one in a sutler's tent run by a woman. So this made it kind of a combination of the PX and the local club. The sutler's wagon was a major component of supply and morale to early modern armies. So this kind of makes the camp women part of the supply branch as well. One account of soldiers' wives in the Thirty Years' War described how There were some who sold tobacco and provided the men with pipes when they need them. Others sold schnapps and had the reputation of mixing it with spirits which they had distilled themselves, which did not make it any the less strong. The sutlers knew what any good bartender knows. The drunker they are, the more they buy. One British officer in America described how much being in Canada sucked before remarking that the only relief was in the almost lethal spirits provided by the women's sutlers. Them sutlers are like, that's right, boys, take your medicine, drink it up. And you didn't step on their turf. King Frederick the Great of Prussia was drilling his troops one afternoon when he decided to climb a hill to watch the maneuvers. But when he got there, two women sutlers had already set up their stalls. They basically told King Frederick to beat it, bozo. This is our spot. We got here first. Frederick the Great said, yep. Fair, and he went somewhere else. Old Fritz understood the importance of sutlers. During his wars with Austria, he devoted the entire output of Prussia's breweries and distilleries to keeping the sutlers supplied. Johann von Grimmelshausen, a soldier in the Thirty Years' War, wrote fictional stories about a number of camp women from Germany in the 1600s. One of his characters is Courage, an anti-hero who basically forced gumps her way across the age of mercenary armies. Courage eventually fills almost every role a camp follower could fill, including officer's wife, prostitute, so-called whore, pillager, thief, and finally sutler. Grimmelshausen, through Courage, describes how she obtained her wares. No article, whether gold, silver, or jewelry, not to mention pewter, copper, or cloth, whether clothing or anything else, whether legal booty, plunder, or even stolen goods, was too expensive or too cheap for me to trade it. As a result, the contents of my two carts were more like a general merchant's stock rather than just a vittler's, and I could supply anything, at a price, to any soldier, high or low. The most famous women's sutlers were the vivandières or cantiniers of the French army. The vivandières served throughout the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, in the Crimean War and almost up to 1914. In the campaign in Italy in 1859, the French supply system broke down entirely, and the vivandières were the army's only supply source for a certain period. They were widely imitated in other armies, including during the American Civil War. They even had their own military uniforms complete with a blue coat and brass buttons and a big skirt. Frederick the Great's women sutlers, the Marketenderin, had to wear a blue cockade in their hat as an identifier. They had official status because they provided services that the armies recognized as essential. Notice a the theme here? So every army had its little train of sutlers, their chests of cigars and kegs of hard whiskey stored along with a pop-up tent and movable stall on their big wagons. Logistics, supply, and morale, to a big degree, were in the hands of the camp followers' sutlers. There is some evidence that the women were also the managers of money and finances within the campaign community. 
They weren't in charge of the army's money. I want to make that very clear. The army had paymasters and pay sergeants for that. But within the family unit, the wife seems to have been the one who managed the funds. Lots of old wood prints and images from the period show men carrying their arms and armor on the march, while women carry most of the household goods. But they also usually carry the purse. In the civilian world of early modern Europe, the man might be the crafter, the baker, the woods worker, the craftsman, but it was often his wife who managed the money and kept his books. The same partnership may well have applied to soldier families. I remember being overseas and hearing a buddy of mine complain about his wife giving him hell for spending too much money on snacks. The dude snacked a lot, but it seems like there's a little bit of a common thread going here. Women also conducted labor for the army. There are multiple accounts of the army's women, including prostitutes, wives, and so-called whores, taking part in heavy labor, including carrying supplies and equipment, digging trenches, preparing fortifications. Someone had to do this stuff. One military writer talked about seeing women help with mounting the artillery for a siege. These were more masculine tasks than women would do back home, like women weren't, wouldn't be hired to dig anything back home, that was men's work. But in the campaign community, they had their own rules for what was men's and women's work. With one big caveat, women could occasionally do men's work, not the other way around. A woman could act like a man and sometimes she was expected to, but it was unthinkable for a man to act like a woman. This was a one-way street. So I just described all this stuff that women did as part of early modern armies. There was one big function they performed in mercenary armies, but much less in state armies that we need to talk about. And that was pillage, what historian John Lynn calls the pillage economy. We saw how mercenary armies tended to ransack their way across Europe before 1650. After that, rulers started to assert control over this violence, assert their authority by creating state armies. Well, that ransacking the mercenary armies did was not only the worst thing that ever happened to anyone in the army's path. It was also a vital part of the army's sustainment. The army needed food, water, supplies to function, and when the soldiers didn't have sufficient outside support from their employers, they took what they needed from the community. They pillaged. And like I've said, this could be brutal, downright savage. But women were a key part of this pillage style of sustainment, what you might call stolen supply. Look, y'all, I've said this before. Most armies in the pre-modern era had to sustain themselves from the countryside around them. Supply lines could only go so far. We discussed that a few weeks ago, back during the logistics of the Imjin War. And for most mercenary armies of the 16th and 17th centuries, of the Italian Wars or the Thirty Years' War, there was no supply line. They either, they either paid for what they needed or they just took it and said, tough luck, buddy. And women were a key part of this stolen supply system. The camp follower was an experienced pillager who knew what she had to do for her, her man, and their children to survive. Women pillagers were infamous for being, if anything, more rapacious and more thorough than the men. They stole chickens and hogs, beer and wine, silver and gold, wood and coal, anything that wasn't nailed down. Germans during the Thirty Years' War complained about women from the Swedish army pulling up produce as soon as it was ripe before the people who actually owned the orchards or owned the farms even knew it was ready for harvest. Plundering wasn't restricted to mercenary armies. Even in the state armies, as late as the Napoleonic Wars, camp women were still legendary plunderers. 
Accounts of British battles against the French in Spain talk about the smoke barely fading from the battlefield before the camp followers arrived. They would swoop down on the dead and start going through their pockets and picking buttons and stuff off their coats, often with a small army of children following them as their little minions. The plundering of British camp followers in Spain was so notorious that even the Duke of Wellington, their commander, complained about it. One British noblewoman was shocked that he had punished women for looting with the same whippings that he gave his own soldiers. The Duke of Wellington responded, It is known that in all armies the women are at least as bad, if not worse than the men, as plunderers, and the exemption of the ladies from punishment would have encouraged plunder. So women were a key element to the army's plunder economy. They were a big part of its logistics. Before 1650, during the age of mercenary armies, the number of camp followers was much larger than after 1650 during the age of state armies. People have been trying to figure out why this was, and historian John Lynn's hypothesis is that women were such an essential part of this pillage economy of the stolen supply system that when state armies got rid of the pillage economy in favor of a state-funded, state-controlled military, most of these women were no longer militarily necessary. They were phased out. Women were still always around after 1650 and still provided support services, but the pillage economy was no longer their main source of supply, so the armies no longer required as many women to perform that essential logistical function. So that was what women did in an army. I've started this episode asking you to imagine an army and then to add the baggage train full of women. But now that we know what they did, it's kind of hard to see how the armies would have functioned without them. Maintenance, medical support, logistics, morale, welfare, supply, labor, transportation, combat support, the tail rather than the teeth, the stuff that all armies need even if they don't think about it or like admitting it. But I should emphasize too, this was a hard, hard freaking life. People were not usually having a fantastic time in early modern armies, the soldiers or their women. They carried enormous burdens, marched long distances, suffered the elements, disease, and usually mortal danger. So with that in mind, you might be asking why any woman would join one of these armies. Why would you tag along with these guys? Why would a woman of any age want to be a prostitute, a wife, or so-called whore? Well, most of the reasons for the women were the same as those for the men. Economic. They might be refugees or a victim of famine or poverty. Running off to join the army, because that is what they're doing, might seem like a better option than being a peasant farm laborer or suffering on the streets. Maybe the adventure and excitement of life on campaign seemed like an improvement. Joining the army might have been better or safer than wherever they came from. Yeah, the army sucked, but in this time period, Everything sucked, so it's one suck versus another suck. Lots of women lived in war-torn areas like Germany, the Netherlands, or France. It was probably safer with an army than in the path of one. It might have just been their best bet from a sheer survival standpoint. Plus, all things considered, the military life wasn't that much harder or less safe than working in the fields or being poor in the city. And especially in wartime, a woman might have been dislocated from her home or family. They just had nowhere else to go, and neither did their children. Because yes, children were part of this campaign community too, and they just tagged along and lived along with everyone else. Soldiers' families would go with them to war, 
And soldiers' families and garrison would often share a room with the husband and many other soldiers. Even as late as 1845, one British soldier reported a barracks filled with 18 soldiers, two of whom were married, and they had their wives and around seven to eight children living in the same one-room building as the other soldiers. There was no family housing. One officer found one of his soldiers' wives living pretty darn rough. I saw an unfortunate woman in the barrack with some 50 men, the only accommodation being that between two beds, a sort of curtain was set up. What a position in which to place a woman, especially when her husband is away on duty. Yep, that is all the privacy you as a family have in the world. There is a curtain set up between your beds. Living conditions could be even worse. The records of the British garrison on Gibraltar report a complaint about the tearing down of local chicken coops because soldiers' wives and children had set up camp in there. Another woman on campaign recalled feeling, Happy in the possession, small as it was, of a small pigsty, for its roof was a shelter from the wintry blasts. So you might be wondering just how this whole childbirth thing went down. Well, the stories I've heard are pretty psychotic. Lots of times they would just call a midwife to the barracks and the poor woman would give birth while her husband's squad mates watched, smoking pipes or eating snacks like it was a Netflix special. Birth control? What birth control? This is the 18th century. It gets worse. Seriously, it does get worse. One woman was nine months pregnant and marching along with her husband's army before she suddenly disappeared from the column. She showed up. Some little time afterwards, hurrying with her husband after us, and in her arms she carried the babe she had just given birth to. Just given birth on the freaking road. Walk it off, girl. You'll be fine. Think about how lunatic this is, though. Seriously. Hey, guys, I got to stop for a couple hours. I'll, I'll catch up. And then she's catching up. I'm like, what did you do? Oh, I just gave birth. I'm fine. Let's go. But nothing matches an unnamed Venezuelan woman in the army of Simon Bolivar. This army crossed the Andes to fight the Spanish in 1819, around 2,800 men with 1,000 camp followers. This was a famous crossing in uh, South American history that a lot of healthy men did not survive. On July 3, 1819, Bolivar's aide-de-camp was told this woman was giving birth, and the next day he saw her marching up the icy Andes, a newborn in her arms. You know, like, oh, the, the hardest day was yesterday. Today's going to be much easier. Okay, y'all, we've seen some crazy people in this podcast. Some people I would never want to fight. Like, put me up against this guy, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I think of Stephen Decatur Jr. and Ajinga of Nadongo, Pyrrhus of Epirus, and Kato Kiyomasa. Like, I don't want to fight those people. But very few people scare me more than that woman who gave birth in the Andes and then kept marching like it had just been another day. That is a tolerance for pain and suffering that I don't think I can imagine. But camp followers were exposed to other dangers on the campaign trail. Camp followers were both perpetrators and victims of violence. Let's find out what happened when the Army's women followed the Army to combat. So we have seen how women fit into the campaign community and what roles they served in the maintenance of an early modern army. But armies are made to conduct warfare. 
and violence is an inherent part of that. Women camp followers were easily within the battle zone, within the zone of active operations, and often in the line of fire. American military leaders during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were often anxious to keep women service members away from combat, since they technically weren't supposed to serve in combat units. This was a long-standing American trend, keep the women away from combat. It didn't work, the combat zone in those wars was never very well defined. But this goes to show how people seem to think it's a novelty for women to be in the combat zone, for women to be near combat. When in fact, the women of early modern armies were frequently exposed to and took part in violence. So how did camp followers interact with the violent world of early modern European warfare? Violence in early modern Europe, just like work in early modern Europe, was gendered. Men and women had different forms of violence that were considered acceptable. One particular example of this is spousal or partner violence wife beating. This was depressingly common. Lots of pop culture portrayed the battle of the sexes, the battle for the pants, as an overtly physical battle where men used violence against their women to assert their authority. Lots of media portrayed women beating their husbands as a sign of the collapse of civilization the world turned upside down because everyone knew it was supposed to be the other way around. This was the standard throughout Europe in this time period. Plenty of songs and stories of the time explicitly encourage men to use violence to keep their wives in line. But the army was also an inherently violent place, with different gender dynamics and more overlap between normal men's and women's work. Women were allowed to be a certain level of masculine, to take on what queer theorist Jack Halberstam calls a female masculinity. But women behaving too much like men was a challenge to men's gender roles. Am I saying all these men beat their women? No, of course not. Everything, there's no such set rules for any of this. A lot of times these tracks prescribing that men beat their women were prescribing it because the author felt they weren't doing it enough. That's a sign that partner violence was not the norm, but it was definitely a reality in these camps. And it was far more common and accepted than in the modern day. Women being violent against men was seen as a violation of the social order in most situations. But against women? Well, that was another story. The chronicler Volhausen described a scene from the Age of Mercenary Armies, where a random argument turned into a fight. It started when two women fought over who got to ride on one of the wagons. When one of the prostitutes hopped onto a wagon and called shotgun, another woman said, you miserable prostitute. You want to ride, and I am an honorable wife of a soldier who has made many campaigns with him. And you wretch, you will lord it over me. Wives and prostitutes started fighting, pulling hair, slapping, and punching. But no weapons were used. That was a man's thing. But then the men got involved. The wife, her hair askew from the fight, ran over to her husband and said... Look, Hans, there is this or that one's whore. She sits in the wagon, wants to ride, and I have to go on foot. I, your honorable wife! Old Hans knew that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, so it's time to go make someone else unhappy. He rushed over and tried to pull the prostitute off of the wagon, only to be confronted by her man. They got in an argument, and then the swords came out. Volhausen concluded his story... 
This is no rarity, for when in transit, hardly a day passes in which three, four, or even ten soldiers do not lose life or limb for the sake of their women. So this story is great because it not only shows women's power rankings within the army, the wife thought she was better than the prostitute, but also shows how each gender had an acceptable form of violence. Women could slap, kick, punch, bite, pull hair, and curse each other out, but they were not supposed to use swords. Those were for men. Women could engage in violence, but not lethal violence within the camp. Dueling, especially, was considered to be a man's realm. But women were in great danger on campaign. Women in the baggage train were close to battles, and that meant that they were often exposed to the enemy. An army that was defeated in battle stood a very good chance of having its baggage train looted. The British capture of the French baggage train at Vittoria in 1813 was infamous for the absolute breakdown of discipline, women in the baggage train being victimized by men and women from the enemy army. And this meant women were directly exposed to the violence of the enemy army. But there was also a special form of violence reserved for the women. And this was rape. Rape is a reality of warfare. And camp followers were exposed to this danger throughout their already difficult lives. One of the unspoken conditions of soldier-woman partnerships was protection of the woman by the man from the sexual violence of other men. Women were often viewed as possessions in this time period. People referred to them as my whore, my prostitute. And sometimes the women encouraged this viewpoint. Don't touch my woman is a very common male reaction, and one that a woman might rely on and instigate for her own protection. One chronicler reported a man who decided that his so-called whore had made him angry. So... According to the monstrous camp custom, he could turn her over to the stable boys and camp hirelings. Yeah, that might be the darkest thing I've mentioned in this podcast so far. It was certainly not the norm. I've only found this one explicit story of a man punishing his girlfriend by turning her over to other men to be gang raped. But it happened. Not that they were helpless. One Thirty Years War soldier remembered an incident where... On the 10th of July, a soldier's wife stabbed a corporal who, so she claimed, tried to force her to sleep with him. She was held prisoner for several days, but afterwards she was set free again. So there's an acceptable version of lethal women's violence, protecting your virtue from an assailant. No one was going to blame you for that. Rape was also a danger faced by women in the army's path. When we talked about plunder and pillage, this did often include the rape and seizure of women. Sexual assault was shockingly common during the mercenary wars, especially the Thirty Years' War. Gimmelschalzen described it this way. I will not waste time describing how the men of the conquered town were all butchered by their conquerors, the women raped, and the town itself plundered. Such events became so commonplace in the prolonged war that is now past that the world is only too familiar with them. And a lot of these kidnapped women eventually became camp followers themselves of the army that had kidnapped them. A lot of these women with these armies, the mercenary armies, were not there by choice. But to be totally fair, a lot of the men weren't either. This was just a sort of normalized violence in the age of mercenary armies, and was one of the reasons that European rulers tried to get rid of this mercenary army system. 
There would still be war crimes and acts of brutality from state armies, but nothing like the level of the Thirty Years' War. That level of random horrifying violence would not be seen again until World War II, committed by the German army. So we have to realize and account for the special danger of sexual violence that women face on the campaign trail. But women were also exposed to good old-fashioned regular violence. They were part of the army, usually very close to any combat, constantly under fire, constantly in the battle zone, exposed to danger and wounding and death. We saw in the first episode of this podcast how Lady Sale and other British women were exposed to the Afghan fire during the retreat from Kabul in 1842. One British soldier talked about the aftermath of the Battle of Waterloo. They found the French camp and... Many women were found among the slain. As is common in the camp, the camp followers wore male attire with nearly as martial a bearing as the soldiers. Baroness von Rietdiesel, the Hessian general's wife who followed them with their three daughters to fight the American Revolution, was under fire at the Battle of Saratoga. Multiple cannonballs passed through the house where she and other women were nursing wounded soldiers. The screaming and cursing of American camp followers on the other side of the battle line was audible throughout the same battle. And also from the American Revolution, you have the legend of Molly Pitcher, probably based on the real story of Margaret Corbin, who was wounded helping her artillerist husband defend a fort in 1776. Camp followers, the non-combat arms, could be casualties of war just as much as the men. Anytime you hear the baggage train was sacked in the description of a battle, that means women died. Women also served aboard the ships of most navies. An Englishwoman, Sarah Frank Pitt, served aboard Admiral Horatio Nelson's flagship HMS Victory. During the Battle of Trafalgar, she carried powder to the guns and was recognized for her heroism. This is the kind of thing that if you saw it in a modern movie, you might think it was unrealistic or the film director just trying to be modern or maybe woke. But nah, this happened. Now, it was not considered acceptable for women to stand in the line of battle, shoot guns, wield weapons on the field. That was a man's thing. I'm certain it happened, just from sheer necessity and self-preservation, but that violated the standards of gendered violence. One area where women could participate in lethal violence was in defense of a city. Women were not only allowed, but expected to engage in violence to defend home and hearth. Since a woman's place was considered stereotypically to be the home, defending the home was easily within the realm of women's violence. I've talked before about how early modern warfare revolved around sieges, capturing fortified places, and this by necessity put many women in the line of fire, not just camp followers. We saw in the Imjin War, the siege of Hangzhou, how Korean women participated in the defense of the hilltop fortress against the samurai. This happened anytime there was a siege of a major fortress, the women always participated. They aren't just huddled in the middle of the village screaming and crying, they participate. They're expected to. This has been common throughout the ages, all across the world. Women fighting in sieges is considered acceptable. Even the biblical Judith was praised for cutting a dude's head off when he attacked her village. There are too many examples of women taking part in sieges to count. It is harder to find sieges without them. Sometimes they were even in command. In 1590, Francoise de Cézalie held the French town of Lucat against the Spanish, and during the English Civil War, multiple English noblewomen led their estates and fortresses against besieging armies. Sometimes women became famous heroines for their actions in sieges. 
The Dutch woman Kanaal Simons Hasselaar not only fought in the front lines, she raised a battalion of women, armed and equipped them with her own money, and led them in the Siege of Harlem in 1572. A German woman named Jessica Magdeburg fought with sword and musket from the walls of Brunswick in 1615. These women were not criticized for taking part in masculine violence. Instead, they were honored and held up as heroines by their societies. Women doing battle in sieges was an acceptable form of feminine violence. But if the battle had taken place in a field 20 miles away, it would be another matter entirely. Because no matter what other function they served as non-combat arms and support personnel, as victims and perpetrators of violence, women were not supposed to serve as soldiers in uniform or on campaign. But that doesn't mean they didn't. See, when I say women in the army in early modern Europe, what many of you guys might have imagined was a female soldier. What I call, just for the convenience of the modern audience who all saw Disney movies as kids, a Mulan situation. We've seen Mulan, right? Woman disguises herself as a man and joins the ranks. Now, as we've seen, plenty of women saw war in combat without doing this. Their stories are my focus today. But I do want to talk about women in disguise, Mulan situations, just to drive home this point about gender and violence. Multiple women served as soldiers in disguise, cross-dressing, in the ranks of early modern armies. There is no telling how many there were, how many Mulan situations went on. The best answer is that it was not common. These were extraordinary situations, but there were definitely more than a few. Some women became famous, including Deborah Sampson in America, Christian Davies and Hannah Snell in England, Catalina de Arauso in Spain, and Nadia Dorova in Russia. They became minor celebrities after they took off the uniform, and there are literally hundreds of folk songs, stories, and depictions of this small number of cross-dressing women soldiers. Despite their small numbers, they were easily the most visible women in early modern armies. But these were only the famous ones. There were at least dozens, at the very least we know of dozens, and possibly thousands. In 1762, one Englishman joked that there were so many women probably in the ranks that they should give them their own regiments. Some women were only discovered after their deaths. One Dutch writer said, During my days in the army, a girl in the cavalry was caught plundering and suffered herself to be hung without making her sex known. This the sergeant on duty told me. He had her undressed after she died and felt sorry about it. So she, they didn't know she was a woman until after they'd already hanged her for looting. Who knows how many other women were in the army? Chances are every battlefield that Bonnie Prince Charlie, Frederick the Great, George Washington, and Napoleon's armies fought on had at least a few women soldiers amongst the dead. How many will never be known? But women soldiers were a major transgression of the gender definition of violence. It was a bridge too far, even in a world where women marched and died with armies, where they defended cities, where they were exposed to all kinds of hardship and cruelty. Uniformed combat in the army was part of a man's world, and women weren't supposed to be part of that. If the authorities discovered the sex of a female soldier, they almost never really punished her. But they, like, there was not a lot of punishment for this exact act. But they definitely made sure she could no longer serve. Some people believed, as some people believe in the modern day, that women soldiers were just lesbians who liked to serve because that's what, you know, lesbians want to be part of a man's world so they can prey on other women or something. 
This was almost never the case. Hannah Snell, Christian Davies, Deborah Sampson all married and had children after their service was up. They didn't seem to remain, they didn't seem to be attracted to women. Hannah Snell and Nadia Darover were both forced to convert with prostitutes while they were disguised in order to ward off suspicion and maintain their cover. They did like, haha, look guys, I love girls, see? But there were definitely some soldier women who could be regarded as lesbian or even transgender. Catalina de Arauso was openly lesbian. I'm surprised she didn't get executed at certain points. Maria von Antwerpen got married to women twice and was put on trial both times she did so for allegedly mocking the institution of marriage. She claimed that she never had sex with them, but that she was... By nature and character, a man, but in appearance, a woman. Hmm. Nature of a man, appearance of a woman. Do we have a word for that in the modern day? Katharina Link not only married a woman incognito, but consummated the relationship using a, a device made from stuffed leather without her wife's knowledge. Katharina maintained this disguise for a while while being married to this woman who kept asking her why she peed so funny. This consummation of theirs was enough to get Katharina tried and executed in 1721, not because she was a lesbian or because she was a crossdresser, but for going way, 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 way over the line of 18th century gender roles by penetrating another woman. All in all, women who disguised themselves as men were more of a curiosity than a major force in warfare. I don't mean this to insult their bravery or deny their service, but they were definitely out of the ordinary, not typical of the women's experience of war in early modern Europe. They lived amazing lives, many of which I hope to talk about in this podcast more someday. I really want to talk about, I have, a, I have an episode maybe scheduled for season two about revolutionary women, including Deborah Sampson. But they were not the camp followers who made up the vast majority of army women from the Middle Ages to the revolutions and beyond. Theirs was the average woman's experience of war, and that's what my focus has been on throughout this episode. That's why I talked about them. But I want to tell you about one of my favorite woman soldiers, the story of the Chevalier Dion. Dion was a French nobleman with a distinguished career as a soldier and diplomat who served and fought as a captain of dragoons in the Seven Years' War. He even served as a spy for King Louis XV until he was, well, outed as a woman in the 1770s. This deception had gone on until he or she was 49 years old. Now, Dion was never physically examined and no one could force him or her to be. But when the rumors became too many and too numerous to be denied, Dion openly admitted that she had been a woman this whole time, 49 years, somehow. She continued to wear her dragoon uniform until the king ordered her to put it aside and adopt women's clothing. Dion was mortified and shamed, feeling that her long and loyal service had been disrespected. But she obeyed orders, put the uniform away, and lived as a woman until her death in 1810. Y'all ready for the twist? When her body was prepared for the funeral, the coroner discovered that she was biologically male. Easily, with some feminine characteristics, but biologically male. So, was the Chevalier Dion a man? A woman? Something else? Their biological sex did not match up with the identity society assumed for them, and they changed gender identities midway through their life, apparently willingly. After all, one good flash and all the myths about their true sex would have been disproved. Biologically, hey look, see, I'm a guy. 
But what did he or she or they think they were? What did society think they were? And who was right? Heck, we haven't finished answering that question in the 21st century. But this just shows how ideas of gender have transformed. Look at all the evolution that has taken place, all the changes in the definition of men's work and women's work, men's violence and women's violence, and we can see how malleable these concepts are. Gender is a social construct. That doesn't make it fake or not real. That doesn't mean it's not important and part of a person's identity. That doesn't mean anyone is wrong for acting the way they think a man or a woman should act for living by these gender roles. But society's rules for gender, what men and women are supposed to do and think and be, have changed and will continue to change over time. Understanding that is important for understanding both the past and the present. So, when did all these women stop serving in armies? When did armies finally get rid of their camp followers? We know women didn't follow the armies to war as camp followers, in particular in World War I or II, although they did actually, but that's the popular image, right? Women camp followers did follow the Serbian army to World War I, and we'll talk about that soon, sometime. But we know camp followers went with the armies to the Crimea, to the Civil War, and even to later wars. We have records and documents and photographs of them. But by the world wars, from most countries, this is no longer the case. Things had changed. Why? Well, by the late 19th century, most countries had developed large professional standing armies. And this concept of professionalization and discipline caused the last women camp followers to be pushed out of the ranks. Taking care of soldiers, families, and dependents became a more common thing, especially as armies became more middle class and their soldiers gained more of a voice. And the morality of the Victorian era stressed the fragility of women and their need to be protected, to be shielded and safeguarded from violence. I am going to talk a little bit about this transformation coming up next month when we get into the Crimean War. Also, the professionalization of the army's logistical and supply and maintenance and all the tail portions of the army, well, that sort of made the women obsolete in that role. So combined with the changing military system and combined with the changing morality of society, gender roles changed. Now it was men who did the laundry, men who managed the logistics and transport. Now men did the nursing, insisting that oh, women will faint at the sight of blood, even though women had not been fainting for centuries. Women were seen as the gentle sex to be protected, the creators of life who should be kept as far as possible from its destruction. There was no question of having women handle artillery or carry rocks to the walls or any of that stuff in the Victorian era. Though, as always, it did happen, it just wasn't supposed to happen. The acceptable level of women's violence had changed in a few decades from some in certain situations to none in any situation. But as we know, women did enter the service and perform non-combat related tasks in both world wars. A few fought in World War I, most notably the Women's Battalion of Death, see Unknown Soldiers podcast episode 4, and a larger number in World War II, such as the famous Night Witches. They were no longer camp followers, those were gone. Instead, these women were uniformed, part of the professional army that had phased their predecessors out only a few decades beforehand. So women are serving in uniform in the 1910s. Women were camp followers as late as the 1870s, at least in most of Western Europe and America, and longer in some areas. So what that means is, there was a very, very limited period of time when women were supposedly not with the armies at all, and the more you look into it, the more you realize they're still there even then. 
More recent debates over women in the military tend to ignore the fact that women carried out military roles for centuries, millennia. Not always in combat, but sometimes yes. And I think the reason people have forgotten this is that military history as a discipline, as a field of study in historical matters, really emerged at about the same time that women were at their lowest ever presence in the military in the late 19th century. The historical records these guys examined were often silent on the topic, which is why even parts of today's episode can seem so incomplete. Men looked around, didn't see many women, and assumed this had always been the case. War is so often described as a man's world, something only men are supposed to do, because the histories of war, most military histories, started being written in one of the very few periods when this was even close to being true. Before and after, and probably during that period, women served vital non-combat and occasional, situational or extraordinary combat roles within the military. Maybe we shouldn't be asking when women were part of an army, because it might be harder to find a time when they weren't. They were always present. Even if they faded from our collective consciousness, even if you didn't imagine them when you closed your eyes and imagined an army. Not your fault, but maybe it won't be the case from now on. Early modern armies could not and did not function, campaign, or fight without them. They were important. The camp followers were some of the greatest of all unknown soldiers. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, that is the story of women in early modern armies from around 1450 to 1850. Now, I have only scratched the surface today. You'll notice I bounced around a lot from war to war and country to country. But I hope the organization I chose made some sense. I've talked about who they were, what they did, and how they dealt with the violence of war. There is enough material that I could do entire episodes just on the women of the Thirty Years' War, or the women of the American Revolution, or the women of the French Army. And like some other episodes, I want to use this as a bit of a launch point in the future to look at these folks more closely. In a way, this is a focus episode on a group of unknown soldiers who will be present in many other episodes before this episode and after. When we go to Russia in April, we're going to see a lot of these women, camp followers or some of the major characters in the story of the Crimean War. But another thing I talked about today was gender and how gender roles have changed throughout history. In the 21st century, it is slowly becoming acceptable for women to be in combat. In the 17th century, they were allowed in certain types of combat. In the late 19th century, it was considered unacceptable for them to be in any kind of combat. There wasn't a gradual march in one direction. Gender roles changed along with the culture. This shows us a very important truth of human history as well as military history, that what defines a man and what defines a woman is sometimes much less certain than you might think, is much less consistent and much less of a pattern than you might think. Just ask the Chevalier Dion. I really want to drive home a point with this episode too, and that's that military history isn't just the history of combat, history of battles and campaigns. Armies have a tail as well as a teeth, but the teeth won't work without the tail. Women were central to the functioning of armies in early modern Europe. Even if they weren't technically soldiers, they weren't technically supposed to fight. You can read big, big books about wars in this time period and never once hear the story of a camp follower. 
but the armies couldn't function without them. Just because they weren't technically combatants didn't mean they weren't important. Women's military history is a critical component of military history as a whole and needs to be told. The camp followers, whether prostitutes, wives, or so-called whores, lived complex lives. Were they victims, abused, mistreated, exposed to danger and hardship? Yeah. Were they also sometimes perpetrators of violence, enablers of abuse, thieves, looters, violent, as much of a danger to the country they passed through as their husbands and lovers? Also, yes, the women of European armies didn't fit stereotypes. They weren't completely virtuous or completely sinful. They weren't all helpless victims or greedy prostitutes. Much like the soldiers they followed, they lived and survived in a complex world. We don't expect perfect behavior from anybody we look at in history, and that includes the camp followers, who, if we're being honest, served and sacrificed just as much as any soldier. They were, for all intents and purposes, soldiers. I think they deserve to be a little bit less unknown. Thanks so, so much for listening today. I hope you really liked this episode. I worked really hard on it. I worked hard on all of them, but I worked really hard on this one. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Just maybe don't pull their girlfriend off the wagon so your own wife can ride. It's bad form and you might have to fight him. If you want to read my short write-ups on Deborah Sampson or some other military women, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if all you've got is a slap on the back. Again, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. See you here, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.